This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. And today on this deep dive, we're answering your questions about mortgage brokers. And John, we have a guest with us today. Who have we got, John? She's a wonderful guest too, uh, Rachel from Sphere Home Loans. And Rachel, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, Rachel, your team of brokers help uh, hundreds of My Millennial Money listeners all over Australia. And I just want to say thanks for helping us out because your team have got some good results for our listeners. We have. We love dealing with My Millennial Money clients. Yeah. I was talking to someone about this during the week and... Uh, People always say to me, oh, why would you work with millennials? Like, uh, they're young and got no money and they're hard to deal with and, like, it's the total opposite. Yeah, but, you know, there's no millennials in university anymore. Like, millennials, believe it or not, are functioning adults mm. and we've all got jobs. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, right. So, tell your uh, 80-year-old neighbour who you're talking to to back off for 10 minutes. Back off. But uh, we're, we're just really answering your questions and... Once you have a listen to this episode, I want you to go to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help. If you scroll down, there's a button there and that's, do I need to speak to a mortgage broker? It's a form that I put together just to help people, particularly new home buyers or new uh, investment property purchases. So first purchases of property, it just a, it's a tool to help you understand if it is time to speak to a broker. So after you listen to this episode, jump onto that tool, use that tool. I don't ask for your name, your email or anything to use that tool. And that tool is a really good tool if you're interested in speaking to a mortgage broker and you don't know when it's time to. So let's get into this episode. All right, first question, Lauren Marie, could you ask them, is there any research we should uh, do, which is the newbies, uh, before arranging an appointment? And is there a good time to make an appointment? For example, planning to buy in the next six months versus 12 months. Well, I think it's always a good time if you are thinking of buying to book an initial chat with a mortgage broker and not necessarily a full appointment with all your paperwork, but just a five-minute chat to check that you're on track. So you do know before you make that plan that you are doing the right things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on that, Rach, it's, uh, some brokers are open to having a chat and some are like, don't waste my time, come back in 12 months. Like, and, and you're the chosen one. You, you'll take that call and, and direct them and give them a plan of attack. So I think that's the critical part, isn't it? Like I spoke to someone yesterday, had 35 grand, spoke to their mortgage broker and the mortgage broker basically dismissed them and said, no, we, we, you're not ready yet. Well, What are they waiting for? 
Correct. So, yeah, I think it's um, for, for listeners, you've just got to get the right person in your, in your corner. That's right. And to be on the right plan is a great thing, but there's also a lot of people who think they're not ready and they are. And there may be a certain grant or there may be the possibility for a parental guarantee that they weren't even aware of. So I just think that initial chat may save six months of not being on track. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any research they need to do before they actually pick up the phone or fill out the form on the website or anything like that? Other than knowing their income and how much they have saved, I think that it's just have a chat. And if you want to have a proper appointment, there might be some paperwork we need first, Mm -hmm. but that initial chat we can have anytime. Yeah, sweet. Uh, And I will just encourage everyone to use that filter on the website uh, because that will really help you. And I'm happy, like, if you're gung-ho and the filter says you're not ready and you still want to have a chat, by all means do so, but there might just be a higher chance of it, meaning just wait 10 minutes. But, yeah, always be, you know, willing to to learn and you might pick up something from that first 10-minute phone call with the broker. I cannot tell you how many clients have thought they were having an initial chat too early and their parents may have been on the call and we've ended up doing something completely different that they wouldn't have even considered and they've gotten straight into the market. Yeah, Mm. awesome. Uh, Amanda Jupp, following that, anything and everything to do with buying your first home and how to maximise your chances of getting a home loan? John, from a strategy point of view, before we even think about a mortgage broker, Mm. what are we doing to maximise our chances when we want to get a first home? Yeah, well, I think... There's a few non-negotiables and, and one is making sure that we've got a, a good solid history of savings up our sleeve and we're not taking on any bad debts. So we're eliminating our credit card debt, aren't we? We're uh, avoiding any new car loans or personal loans in, in lead up to that and we're just looking squeaky clean when it comes to any of our uh, pay slips and uh, financial statements, basically. So, yeah, you've you've got to understand that first and foremost. I think knowing what you want longer term, um, yeah, and you may not know what property it's going to be or what you can lend, but indeed know what the next five to ten years might look like in your life. Are we having kids? Are we getting married? What are we doing? Mm. And this is interesting, Rach, like for me to step in right now and say, well, you might be ready to buy your first home because you've got a parental guarantee, which basically means no deposit, quote unquote, is needed. And if you've got a good income, you'd basically step into a home tomorrow. But I would always challenge the premise that if you're in consumer debt, if you've got sloppy money management issues, buying the first home won't solve all, solve all your problems. So I think for your own benefit, clean up your personal finances, get a good budget or spending plan, then when you get into your home, your life will be so much better because everything's clean and ready to go. And I completely agree with that. I think that if you've got things like consumer debt and afterpay and credit cards, we should really work on getting those paid down first. Um, In contrast to that, I met some clients a year ago that had been planning to pay their help debt off before approaching us for a home loan and we sort of made them see that there may be some options to get in before they pay out their help debt. Now, if they'd waited that year, Mm. obviously, we know what's happened in the property market in the last 12 months. Yeah. So, let's talk about HEX and help debt. Um, Where does that stand from a lending point of view? 
It's just like a liability. So if there's a certain deduction from your payslip each week, we're working on your net pay after that deduction to work out what your borrowing capacity is. But it doesn't negatively affect your borrowing. It just changes what you can borrow. But with the Hex and Help debt, it's more so the amount that's being taken from your pay to service that debt, regardless whether it's 20 grand or 200 grand. That's correct. Where if I had a 20 grand personal loan and a 200 grand personal loan, well, that's completely different. That is correct. Okay, cool. I'm just making sure that I'm clear. <laughs> Sorry, I just lost my headphones. <laughs> Proceed without me going. So the help debt's more on what you earn because it's a percentage of your earnings that's used to pay off your help debt. Yeah. So do they, do, do different lenders look at the help debt and say, well, it's okay debt? As it, opposed it's to, definitely seen as okay debt. Yeah. We just have to take that off your income. Mm. And sometimes people will have a certain amount of savings and there might be a bit of help debt left and we'll use some of that savings to pay it out to maximise what they can borrow. Yeah. So basically, if there is a first-time home buyer and they do have the option for parental guarantee, if they've got no you know, credit card debt, consumer debt, good spending habits in place, but still hex or help debt... That's not a non-starter. Like, absolutely, don't let the hex or help debt think that you can't get a mortgage for your first home. No, that's right. You still want to know what you can borrow with and without it. So, I would still, like I said before, have that initial chat just to work out what you can borrow before you pay it off mm. and what you can borrow after rather than waiting. Yeah, and it's interesting, like, for everyone who's read my book and has started to get it and is yet to get it, I actually sent the property and mortgage chapter. Actually, you two were the only people that saw that chapter. Mm. Um, actually, I think um, I had a friend, Jess, in, uh, in Brisbane. She read the property chapter as well, just as a sounding board. But Rach, you made the point because I was pretty much like, get rid of all your debt before you bloody get a house. But you made the point, Rach, if somebody basically wakes up tomorrow and they've got 50 grand in savings and they've got a 20 grand car loan, don't instantly just wipe off the car loan if you want to get a mortgage next week. Like just speak to the broker first because you could it could be a detriment to your situation having no savings and no debt, particularly a car loan, as opposed to having some savings and a little car loan. That's exactly right. And I have an example for you. I had a, um, a client come to me about six months ago who was a lawyer. They just finished their uni degree. They got a great salary and they had 50000 in savings and used 20 of that to pay out their car loan before they saw me. Mm-hmm. Now, with their income, they would have been able to more than service the loan yes. as well as the car loan. But because they had paid that car loan off, they didn't have enough deposit. Mm. Yeah. And they can't get that back they unless can't. they sell the car, right? So, mm. yeah. Yeah. To your point earlier about coming and speaking to someone like yourself earlier rather than later and just sets them up. Yeah, and particularly like that online form that I created, it basically filters out like if you don't have any savings and you have got debt and you don't have a parental guarantee and it's not within the next 12 months you wanting to buy a house, you probably wait. But particularly if you have the intention to buy your first home or your first investment property, you do have some good savings and there are signs of life. You're dialed into your money now. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you, a chat to a broker. You might just subscribe to your monthly newsletter or something just to That's keep right. you in the loop with things and, and yeah. get motivated. And so, sometimes we do have that initial five-minute chat and it might be 12 months before we yeah. actually do a loan for that client and that's absolutely fine. Yeah. So just on, we talked about the Hex and Help debt, which is, you know, a common thing out there. What about 
buy now, pay later, after pay, zip pay, bloody all this crap that's out there now, like they're not regulated. So technically it's not on your credit file that you pay your after pay on time. But how do the banks and lenders look at that if they see these transactions in someone's bank account? Under the character part, it does show that you are somebody that may buy things that you can't afford at the time. So after pay and zip pay, I'd much prefer to see those gone before somebody does do an application for finance, but that's not a rule. Yeah. So it's not a showstopper, but if you are thinking about maybe buying a home or a first property in the next 12 months and you are using these services, probably get rid of them. Yeah. And and not for the sake of keeping your money in your own account for an extra 14 days. That's right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's get into some other juicy questions. Um, Tom says, how the structure of an existing mortgage is changed if you were to knock down your current home and build a new home? So, John, from a practical point of view, what are you doing with your current knockdown and rebuild? Yeah. So, first of all, I if I was doing this, I would um, get a value on the existing house before it's knocked down um, to see what the potential equity position is. Um, And then once you've decided that you're going to build a new home, what are those plans and the structural drawings to be able to see what the end product's going to look like. So they're going to do an as-complete valuation and Rachel will go into more detail on this, I'm sure. But uh, essentially, once they've got an as-complete valuation, combining the two debts together, the one you might already have on your mortgage and the, the new build costs, they can then see what your loan-to-value ratio is going to be and then borrow accordingly. So, Rach, if I've got a, an old shack that I've purchased and you know it's worth a million dollars and I owe 500 grand on it and I want to um, knock it over and rebuild and the current mortgage is just an everyday vanilla mortgage, what's the process from a, a lending point of view if I rocked up at your office and said, give me money? So, the process would be to get a to-be-completed valuation with the building plans on there. And then you do a separate loan to the loan that you have that's called a construction loan or a to-be-complete loan. Okay. So, just on this to-be-complete thing, because John mentioned he's going through it and you've mentioned it as well. So, the bank or the lender will actually look at the plans and say, all things being equal, if this exact house is built on this block with the data that we know within 12 months we assume that there will be enough equity to lend you money. Is that how it works? That's correct. So there might be a house that's worth a million dollars now that's a shag. There might be some plans and a building contract that's say $500,000 and the valuer will say, well, this building on this block of land, we think that's going to be worth 1.5 million. And the bank says, well, because we're going to control that build and we're going to pay the builder in progress draws, so bit by bit, we're going to lend on what it will be worth at the end. Oh, that's interesting. That's good, isn't it? Mm. And that loan will progressively get bigger. Now, a mistake that some people may make in this process would be not to get a little bit of extra money first. So some things that you need to give the bank to get to that process cost money. So we may tend to do a valuation of the property now, get a little bit of extra money to cover things like architects and things that you need to get your drawings done for the bank to be able to value it as if it is finished. Okay, so we've got the $500,000 loan 
we know that the property is worth a million dollars. So you might do an application and say, we want to borrow $50,000 for some architectural things and maybe some superficial site things, or if there needs to be a drain or something, I don't know, I'm just making things up. So you would do that. And then you basically, once all that's done, then you're going to the bank and saying, well, the current debt's 550, but the house is still worth a million as is. That is right. And at that point, we'd also get a pre-approval for the next 500,000. So you're not spending all this money on council approval and architect plans before you know you're going to be able to borrow that amount. And then the only thing the bank are waiting for are the plans and the to-be-completed valuation. Yeah. And and just having gone through that process, it's really critical that the the builders on the same page as the mortgage broker, isn't it? Because the well, and the architect, I suppose, as well. Because you can draw up these wonderful plans, and the builder can go and quote on them, and it's like, "Oh, hang on a minute, I can't borrow that amount." So we need to rejig the plans and start from scratch again. So we need to be all on the same page right from the beginning. Um, but in some cases, if your LVR is fine from the word go you might not need to put any money down and you can borrow the whole amount because your loan-to-value ratio and your servicing is fine. That's fine. In some cases, we don't need to use the valuation as if it's going to be complete. Mm. Um, And then there's a different... I guess there's some different guidelines to follow there. Um, The bank do like to know if their security is changing, so you can't just go and borrow $500,000 as cash out if you're making a structural change. Mm. The bank do want to know what's happening with that property. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And just to follow up to that, for my own curiosity, that um, construction loan, is that the partial drawdown? So if it's, you know, 500 grand in the first tranche or 20%, 100,000, is that an interest only loan? We generally do those loans interest only until they've completed. Yeah. And that loan will progressively get bigger. So when the builder gives a an invoice for $100,000 of the 500, you start to pay interest only repayments on the 100,000 until the next drawdown's made. So the thing that people need to really consider if they are doing a knockdown rebuild is one, where are you going to live during this process? Because you're going to have to pay rent, but also you've got to pay mortgage repayments. And would you ever flick the existing property to interest only while that's all happening? People can do that. Yeah. And sometimes people borrow a little bit extra to cover things like rent. Mm, During yeah, the time, if there's plenty yeah. of equity. Yeah, yeah. Because it is really a, a hop, skip and a jump and really just lining your ducks up mm. and covering those contingencies, given that at the end of this 12-month or 18-month process, we are in our dream home and we know it's worth more, but also we can actually afford the mortgage repayments, right? Yeah, and I think that's the key. Like, had so many situations with clients on on clarity calls where, okay, the bank says they'll lend me X, but okay, well, that's great. But can you actually afford that? Even though they've taken into account their servicing checks and a couple of interest rate increases, et cetera, but they might not know what you know in your life and what you can handle and can't handle. So I think it's really important just to understand, yeah, this is what the banks lend me, but this is what I'm comfortable repaying. That's right. Well, the banks use something called the Henderson Poverty Index. They, it's called poverty for a reason. Yeah. They are not allowing for holidays or, you know, new shoes. So if somebody is borrowing to their maximum, unless they're just out of university or their income's not going to increase greatly in the next few years, I'd be really concerned. Mm-hmm. Why do they do that? Because I, I think that's quite dangerous. Do what? To, to work on the Henderson Poverty Index as you 
Well, we well, as brokers also do another another check, which is we get clients to do a budget and actually say what they're going to be spending. So yeah. you might have private school fees, which the bank doesn't know you have until we tell them. So you might go onto a calculator and say the bank will lend lend me this. But when yeah. we actually look through your budget and think, well, no, you've got these private school fees. You also like to go overseas once a year and I can see that you spend $500 a month on your puppy. Let's put that into your budget and work out what you can borrow with the higher living expenses. Yeah. So I'm just playing the devil here. Like if, if someone's in their corner, not as diligent as someone like you, that it could blow them up using that poverty index. It, it could, and I have definitely seen that happen before. Yeah, and that's why like one of my golden rules is just because you can borrow the maximum amount that the bank tells you that you can doesn't mean you should and it's going to be beneficial for your life. Mm. I mean, we know that with APRA t- tapping banks on the shoulder, it is getting harder to you know do irresponsible lending like early 2000s and all that, but mm. I think it's still good to keep your uh, net take-home mortgage repayments for your own personal budget at under 30% if you can, like regardless if the bank goes, oh, we'll let it up to 40%. Yeah. Not that they probably would because they'd be mortgage stress, but yeah, it's a wild world, isn't it? I always like to send the repayments at what the repayments are now and also what they would be at 5%. Mm. It's just something I like to do and the younger brokers in the office may not have lived through those <laughs> rates, but I certainly have and I felt those rates. So I like to have the clients know exactly what it would mm. be when they do go up. Question here from Damien. Uh, can you ask some questions about debt recycling using the mortgage? I'm really interested, but find it confusing. Uh, minimum amount of equity. And then there's another one from Rachel. Agreed. I've been a bit confused with taking out equity loans to borrow uh, with other banks versus negotiating with existing lender for investment property purchases. So I think if we just start with, we'll use, use, use the same basic example. The property that you've got is worth a million dollars there's $500,000 existing mortgage on it, which means there is $300,000 of usable equity, which gets us up to $800,000 debt, which is 80%. Is that correct? Yeah. So you can go up to 80% of the value of your home yep. without any extra costs or higher rates. Yeah. Which is lenders mortgage insurance, That's or right. they might charge you a higher interest rate if you're borrowing more than- can, Before you go yeah. forward, can we go higher than that? And pay the LMI. Like, where are the banks at in return? We to can. Risk? We can go up to ninety percent in a lot of cases, as mm. long as the client, as long as the client's happy to pay mortgage insurance. Mm. And you may not get. Some of the banks have a little bit sharper rate under the eighty percent, mm. but that's not to say you wouldn't do it. Mm. Yeah, but I, I'm just for this real basic example. Yeah. we've got an existing property worth a million dollars. We've got a mortgage of five hundred thousand, and we want to borrow three hundred thousand dollars against that home. Now, what we do with that 300,000, whether it is buy an investment property, whether it is renovate the existing property, or whether it is buying shares to invest and do some debt recycling, how do you go about these refis? And do the banks want to know what you're using that money for? Or can you say, I'm going to Vegas with 300 grand? You could say you were going to Vegas with 300 grand, but there's different banks have different guidelines around cash out. So depending on what the client would like to do, we may choose a bank that is happy to lend a million dollars for shares just on the fact that the client says they're going to buy shares, where some banks may want a letter from the financial planner saying, I'm having my client buy shares. But you can you can borrow for the deposit of a property before you found a property. As long as you can afford that loan on your income, 
without the rental income for the next property. Mm. And then fast forward, they turn around and say, oh, I'm going to Vegas. They've already lent them the money. As long as they're repaying it, then happy days. That's right. Yeah. So on this thing of we want to borrow $300,000, so the total debt is going to be 800000 which means there's 20% equity in the property. If we take that $300,000 and invest it in shares, would the bank look at... So whether we invest it in shares or buy another investment property with it, do the banks use a different rate if you're for repayments and servicing if it's shares or property or renovating the kitchen? Generally, there will be a different rate for investment versus an owner-occupied. Some banks, it's on the security. So if it's all against your own home, but the purpose is investment, it'll still be the same rate. Right. And some banks will have a majority rule. So if the majority of this loan is for home loan purposes, but 100000 of that's for investment, they'll put it all at the same rate. So when we're doing comparisons, we would look at the person's exact circumstance when we compare. Right. And depending on the asset, do they use a different type of income deeming rate for servicing? So they go, you're borrowing an extra 300000 We know that investment properties, we're going to assume a 5% return where shares they might go, we're going to assume a 6% return. They won't servicing. look at anything to do with return until you've bought the property or have a tax return showing the return from the shares. Right. So you need to be able to borrow that money just on your own income. It's classified as cash out. They're yeah, not looking- okay. That, yeah, that's exactly where I'm getting at. So the cash out, they don't care whether you're buying in terms of whether you can afford it or not. They just want to know if you borrowed $300,000 and renovated your kitchen, it doesn't matter because it's a cash out. We want to make sure you can still afford it rather Without than- any other income. Yeah, like I right. guess I'm saying if you don't have a, a good income and they wouldn't let you cash out to renovate the kitchen, but would they, if you don't have a good income, would they let you cash out to buy- equities that produce a higher income to service it. That's where I'm getting No, at. the banks won't look at, okay. the, at the income. Yeah, sure. Okay. And on the, I suppose there's a common myth out there that says, in Glenn's example, you, you loan, you've got a debt of 800 and the valuation's a million. And now 12 months down the track, we get another valuation and it's 900. Uh, we, nothing's changed other than the fact that the house has gone down in value. What does the bank say to you? Do they say, hang on a minute, you're in um, LMI territory, you need to pay some of that loan down or they just get on with business because you're repaying that debt? Oh, so you're asking whether the bank do random spot checks of your situation? Correct, yeah, yeah. No, that's um, once they've lent it on the valuation now, if the value decreases in a year's time, nothing mm. changes. Mm. Um, you wouldn't be able to borrow more. And for that exact reason... Um, it's a great idea not to have that property crossed with another property because you don't want to have the negative equity in one property affect another. Yes. Okay. Mm. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk, go a bit little deeper into your crossing example. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. You talked about the crossing example with John. 
So if somebody had that house and borrowed $300,000 against it and wanted to buy another property of 500000 basically that $500,000 property, 300000 of that debt would be secured against the home and the 200000 would be secured against the new property or do you do it the opposite and secure as much as possible against the new property? Generally, we would go to 80% on the new property yep. because you want to have as much as you can without it costing any more secured against the new one. So we would just take 20% plus any costs out of the money that you freed up against your own home and then you've still got some left over for another property down the track if you want to. Mm. So as in costs, you mean stamp duty, legals? That's right. Associated, yep. So when you talk about crossing and there's a second property, how do we do it? So if one property is has decreased in value, you're not painted into a corner if you want to sell the house you're living in and the investment property attached to it's worth less or something like that. So if the properties aren't crossed, even if they're with the same bank, if the properties aren't crossed, they're unable to take a loan from one to pay the other if you don't want them to. So if you sell a property that's in, say, negative equity, you've still got to, you can't sell it without being able to pay the remainder. Right, right. Maybe it's worth just stepping back and talking about cross-collateralisation. Yeah, I, was I can't say, even yeah, say that. Let's have a, a definition check on cross-securitisation or yeah. cross-collateralisation. So a re- when I worked for the bank, a yeah. really common way that somebody bought their first investment property was their house is worth a million dollars, they've got a $500,000 loan mm-hmm. and then we would say we can go and buy an investment property for 500000 and we would do a loan for 520000 which is 100% plus costs. But we're not using just one security, we're using two. And by crossing those securities you can essentially lend 100% plus cost because they look at the two values of the properties against the two values of the loans. And that's really common in banks still. Mm-hmm. When you step out of the bank and work as a broker and probably work with more people like like John, you realise that that is maybe more in the bank's interest than the client's because it's... Control. It's control. But also if, if it's the bank's a volume gain, they just need to get the mortgage written and move on. That's right. And they can do it a lot quicker. The turnaround time is speedy, right? Well, even from my perspective, it takes my team twice as long to do a not-cross loan yeah. as it is to do a cross loan. Mm. However, it is a lot easier down the track when you're doing something mm. in five years' time and you're selling a property and not wanting to get caught. So a lot of people come to me and say, are my loans crossed? And I say, well, you have to check your contracts. But the way I explain it, and um, feel free to turn um, turn me down on this, but they've got a loan on their owner-occupier. They should have a separate loan as a deposit amount for their investment property and they should have an investment loan. So they should have... Um, three loans across the two properties. Is that a good example of something that's not crossed? That's a really good example. And you can even name those on your internet banking so you know or your accountant knows, even though this loan's against your own home, it's attributed for tax reasons Mm. against this investment property. Yeah, because that's what on my um, Newcastle property, I think the first 90 grand, because it was an off the plan, is against Blue Bay. Yeah. And that 
is a home loan rate, even though it's for an investment property. Correct. So, yeah. So the whole thing is when you talk. Is that legal? <laughs> Well, well, it is because from your accountant's perspective, it's not what it's called. It's about what the purpose of the loan is. Yeah, Yeah, John, so bag off. Um, Let's move on. We did get into the weeds a bit there and um, it was on notice. So apologies, Rachel and everybody. Um, There's a a question here from Nick Canniwell. How does buying a property, living in it for a year, then renting it out for three to five years and moving back into it affect the mortgage structure? Will it have to be refinanced when it becomes an investment property and then refinanced again when it becomes a home again? Uh, Because he understands investment properties usually have higher interest rates. Now, this is kind of following to the situation versus whatever the accountants or the tax department deem a repayment is, is different to what the banks and APRA say that we can charge you for. That's right. So if you have a home loan, you live in this home today and you move out of that home and it becomes an investment property, your accountant can make that loan tax deductible from when you move out. There is no need to refinance that loan to another loan type, although it may be worth reviewing that loan at the time to see if there's a better way to structure it. Mm. So um, the accountant goes on the purpose of the property and the bank goes on the risk. So it's a little bit higher rate for an investment property because we're using rental income. Mm. So what you're saying to Nick is if he moves out and rents the property out, he might not want to alert the bank that he's doing that because the interest rate will be higher if he goes to refi. He may not, but he may want to review his lending. There might be a better way to set his lending up. If we talk to a client today and this was their plan, if Nick had planned to buy this house, live in it for 12 months and then move out, I would set that loan up differently knowing that was mm. coming. Yeah. No, okay, so important yeah, so for people out there that want to get into the market, be a first home buyer, living it for three to five years, keep it because it's a small townhouse and then turn it into an investment property, what structure would you propose? So this is really common at the moment. With mm. all the first home buyer grants, a lot of people in the cities are going out to get their first homeowner's grant in a property they're going to stay at for a year. And they might have more than the 20% deposit that they need to buy that property. If their goal was to move back into the city, my advice would be to put the minimum amount into that property without making it cost anymore, set up an offset account so you can set that, you're not paying interest on that extra deposit that you have, but all of that loan is still tax deductible when you want to move out and do something else. Mm. Yeah, so it's just so important to do the right structure and that's why we always say have a strategy however small because at least if you start with a bit of an end in mind, at least you're pointing in the right direction. That's right. Now, if they decided to stay in that house and they never needed those funds, we can just move that money up to the loan and mm. they're not paying interest on it while it's in the offset account. Mm. It's But if they do decide to you know, move it and buy another house down the track and they've already paid it off the loan, they can't then just no. draw that home mm. up and make that tax deductible again. So you can go one way, but you can't go back the other. Yeah, and, and it's crucial to have the end in mind, as you said, but it's also crucial to tell your mortgage broker that that's what you've got in mind. If you're not telling them, then they can only do a mortgage. Or at least tell the mortgage broker, look, our intention is to do this, but it might not be this. Like, just give you guys as much information, right? And I think a mortgage broker needs to ask the questions because a lot of the time when people come to us, even for their first, even their second home, they're not quite sure of what to tell us. So I think that the broker really needs to 
dig a little deeper and ask what those short-term and long-term goals are before they make a recommendation. You're saying mortgage brokers should get to know their client? Yes. Yes. There's actually a document that we give the client before we're allowed to submit an application. We give a client something called a credit proposal. And in that credit proposal, it's a conversation and we have to document that. And it's a lot about why we chose the product and what their goals are. So before you do submit any applications, your broker will give you a document that says the whys and how they link into your short and long-term goals. Mm, Yeah. Hey, John, I'll get you to read that question from Cass Bishop because you've got a lot of to answer for for this because you make these flippant comments on podcasts and I get all the freaking inboxes and questions about it. So Thanks, Cass. I think I heard John say on a podcast that you can draw your equity out of your home loan while the market is so hot and potentially sit it in your offset until you want to use it. What are you actually applying for if you do this and what does it look like? Is it something you would get your broker to do or do you just apply to the bank? Rachel, this is all yours. Well, I think that if you've got equity available in your property and you do have plans for it down the track and you are able to service that loan now, it may be the time to take it out. Something I would ask would be, are you feeling secure that you can leave that money there and not use it for anything else not until you want to invest on it? it. Yeah. And some people, Glenn wouldn't and some do people it. can't. Do it. No. Some people can't. Yeah. And some people, one half of the couple probably could and one half couldn't. You really need to have a conversation about whether you can have a large amount of money sitting there and not use it until you need it. If you can and you're happy to do that, then there's no reason not to take it out, leave the money sitting in an offset so you're not paying interest on it and have it there ready for when you do want to do something else. You may choose to buy an investment property in a year and your house may not be valued as much at the time, if you didn't take that cash out now, you'd be limiting your options for the 12 months time. Yeah. And I think um, at the time, I do remember saying that, Cass, so good listening. But (laughs) I think um, the example I gave was uh, where we're really strong with our servicing, but our deposit might not be there in cash. So when the when we're in a market which we're in now in a lot of parts of the country, like crazy not to get some valuations done and, and at least see what's available. So just really practical, because I like getting practical because I'm basic and I need an example. Let's go back to the five hundred thousand dollar mortgage and the million dollar house, okay? Million dollar value. We want to get three hundred thousand out because the market's hot. How does that work? Do we? Does it actually set up a second mortgage? So at the moment, we've got home mortgage, $500,000 in our internet banking, negative 500,000. Yeah. Do you go to the lender and say, we want to do a cash out and they set up a second mortgage that is 300,000? We would definitely set up a, another mortgage. And then- do you then just say we want an offset on that and you have the $300,000 sitting outside that mortgage in an offset or do you have a $300,000 mortgage that's redrawable at any time in credit? So I would do, I would always recommend a $300,000 interest only mortgage with an offset account linked to it. Mm-hmm. That way the loan isn't going to be looking for a repayment. Now, some people, when I suggest this might say, well, hang on, the principal and interest rates are less. I would like that product rather than the interest only with a slightly higher rate. But something that you need to know is that you're not paying anything on that loan yet. You're not paying anything until you draw it. Mm. So interest only makes it the most flexible and you can always flick it over to principal and interest when you want to use the money. Right. So if someone does have meat in their property and they hear John saying, 
you know, if you're not ready to invest now while the values are good, go and get the cash out. When they reach out to your team, what language do we use? Do we want to do a cash out for the future or something like that? Yeah, we want to cash out for future investment in an interest only loan against their own occupied property. Mm. I don't want to draw it down. They don't want to draw it down and they always want an offset account. If we can, if it works for them, we'd like to have a a, a bank that has multiple offset accounts if we're going to be doing that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to get a lot of calls in the next few days to say, (laughs) Rachel, can you do a bell on my home? But I would say as well, you would use that time to get the broker or your team to go, well, you're with St. George or Macquarie mm. or whoever you are at the moment. Well, we've got to do an application anyway. Let's just step back for two hot minutes and see if we can get a better deal overall for the whole debt. Is that a fair That's comment? right. So I'm talking to one of John's clients at the moment mm. who has a, a, an investment property loan that he's looking at refinancing to buy another property. He's not quite ready yet. He needs six months before he can afford the next investment property. I'm still going to refinance the loan he has because it's principal and interest and a higher rate. Mm. So I'm going to flip that over to interest only now so it's ready for the next property. I'm going to take him to a lender that uses overtime because a lot of his income's overtime mm. and we're going to be ready for six months' time when he's ready to go. We're not going to change lenders then. We're just going to get the second investment loan. So it all comes down to strategy and this is why you know, if you wanted to know why you use a mortgage broker, just rewind one minute and listen to that again. Mm. We've got a mortgage broker that's looked at a client of John's who is in a bit of a pickle, which if that client walked into the bank next door down the road, they might say, no, we can't help you. But a mortgage broker goes, well, no, this lender over here, they're still a top four bank. They do overtime. No worries. Done deal. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand what the markets are doing as well, but but also the uh, the conditions. Like I got a valuation done last March or April, uh, which was a uh, interesting time to say the least. Valuers weren't jumping out of bed because of the current conditions right around the world. Um, and fast forward twelve months, that valuation, although it was done by a different valuer, was six figures different. Right. Now, that's that's a game changer. If if you just sat back on your hands and waited for another few years because you thought, oh, it's worth what it's worth back in March last year, um, you've wasted opportunity in the market, haven't you? That's right. I have a client waiting to buy off the plan and it's going to be settling in 18 months. And I called him last week to say, let's get a valuation done of your house mm. and get that deposit ready for the property you're buying in 18 months. Because if that property he's buying in 18 months decreases in value, we can use the value of his house now to yeah. offset that. Yeah. So that. We're going to do exactly what you talked about, tap into that equity now and get ready for that property coming off the yeah. plan. There's this underlying thing that's always in every episode of My Millennial Money and that is be present, be active, have a goal and happen to life. Don't let life happen to you. Like, And this is it, Like, you dialed in, you know, you might have done something that's due to happen in 18 months, but can you move some cards now and be active now, even if it's a clarity call with John or pick the phone up to your broker? And if you don't have a broker, talk with your H mm. and her team. But yeah, so lots going on here. I want to just keep moving through some of these questions. Angelica V, I was about to post a question about refinancing. So, and that's a whole discussion in itself because it's a buzzword out there like refinancing and refinancing. 
when is it too soon to refinance and how do we work out if it is worth refinancing and the costs associated with it? I think a lot of people use the term refinance rather than review. I don't think a refinance is always necessary. Mm. A lot of the time people come to me after doing a home loan 12 months ago and they want they say they want a refinance appointment, but when we actually sit down, what they need is a $20,000 top up and a review of their rate. Mm. And sometimes we can do that with their existing lender. And sometimes we'll give a comparison between their lender and the best they'll offer and another lender and they may make the choice mm. to refinance, but you need to have a look at the comparison of what it would look like before you decide whether you're going to refinance or have a review. Yeah, that that is superb. I think so many uh, brokers talk about refinance uh, as a way to get their business across and have the ongoing trail, right, um, versus a review that says, well, actually what you've got now is fine. Let's just do X, Y, Z because people don't want to go through the paperwork if they don't need to. So the first question I would ask them is, why are you taking me away from this existing lender that I've got? That's right. And sometimes you do need to do the paperwork again, even with the same lender, mm. to get the better rate. A lot of the time it's a, it is an internal refinance. Yeah. Um, I Just to share something, I pay my team the same, whether they take somebody to another bank or they keep them with their same bank, even mm. though that's not always how the banks pay us. I mm. think it's really important that we're always acting in the client's best interest regardless of what they do. Yeah, that's good. Actually, it's funny you say that, Rach, because we should, you know, talk about this. There was a question I wasn't going to uh, go there, but we will. You know, you pay your team the same salary and sure, if an aggregate, the whole team does well, you might pay bonuses, but it's not as if you're paying your brokers more, the more that they churn people out and... That's right. They're not rewarded for moving banks. That being said... In the 20 years that I've done this, I have very rarely met any broker, even if they're paid to churn, that would do the wrong thing by the client. Mm. Because long term, we tend to get paid by the banks in a trailing commission. So even if we might not get an upfront, if it's the best thing for the client, we're going to keep that client for a long time. And that's what most brokers are out there looking mm. to do. Yeah. Word of mouth. So the Royal Commission, did that mess around with your business on the ground, with your brokers? Like, um, do different banks pay more interest rates? What? Because I don't suggest anyone out there listening work for free. I don't suggest you work for free, Rach. I don't suggest John work for free. I don't work for free. Like we've got show sponsors. We've, you know, no one should work for free. Everyone deserves to be remunerated for their work. How does your mortgage brokers get paid? How does your business get paid? We get paid by the bank um, and we get paid whichever bank we put you with, we're going to get paid an upfront commission and a trailing commission. The client doesn't pay that. The banks pay that to us rather than their branch network. So Westpac Bank might have, you know, they might be paying a home lender salary and then they might be paying rent for the property that they have to, all of those things. Or they can pay a broker, which is actually their cheaper acquisition channel. Mm. Um, Somebody like an ING, they don't have a branch network, so they rely on brokers. So the client doesn't pay, the bank pays. We get paid pretty much the same regardless of the bank. And then my team get paid a salary and they might get paid bonus commissions if they do an awful lot of work. Yeah. Um, But generally they're relying on their salaries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was actually, you know, and the reason why, you know, Rachel's team is on our preferred panel is one of that's one of the reasons and you know we trust that they'll always do best for our listeners 
I was actually in one of our other preferred financial advisors' office the other day, and I heard one of them on the phone say to someone on the phone, I was just literally walking past, and they said, yeah, we're actually not paid any bonuses or anything like, and this is it, like, it's not 2001 anymore. It's not the Wolf of Wall Street. Like, (laughs) Rachel would rather look after her clients. She would rather her team members look after customers than having this business model of screwing people because there's just no longevity in it. That's right. We're a very big business and we have a big what's called a trailing commission. So we've got a lot of clients where the banks are paying us an ongoing commission to look after those clients. Mm. We're not chasing a deal. Um, Our business is built on reputation. If you do Mm. the right thing by people, Mm. they come back. And there was a comment in the Facebook group the other day and I jumped in and, you know, said some wise words and I'll get your input on this, Rage. They said, we've just been to a mortgage broker. They want to charge us a $300 fee to do some work or as a some type of pre-assessment fee. We'll call it a pre-assessment fee. Is this dodgy? Is it not? And I basically jumped in and said, look, it's actually, it's a business model. Um, it doesn't mean they're a bad broker. It could mean that they get a lot of volume and they only want to deal with people who are straight up serious and dialed in and engaged. So, a commitment fee from a broker, non-refundable couple hundred dollars, I wouldn't mind paying it if I knew the broker was dialed in and I get 120%. Can I get your comments on that and your I, business model? I'm in, a, I'm in a, a group of brokers that we all sort of catch up and talk mm. and they're good brokers and a lot of them do charge that fee. Mm. We've chosen not to. Uh, we definitely could. Mm. We We get a lot of business based on the fact that we never charge the client mm. on the way in or on the way out. Right. And so some brokers also have something where, you know, if you did refinance in six months, there would be a fee or some clients might, brokers might have a, like a consultation fee. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with charging that. Um, mm. A lot of them refund it when you do do a loan with them, just so they're not wasting their time. Yeah. We've chosen not to charge that fee, yeah. but I have no problems with when brokers do. And mm. I think that it's good value. Yeah. So if you get referred to a broker and you really get on with them and you love it and they say, oh, but it's a $300 commitment fee, that's not a red flag. It's a business model. And I would say if you've got confidence from a referral that's used their service and they present well and you feel like it's a good thing, I wouldn't be um, upset paying that commitment fee. The wrong broker will cost you a lot more than $300 in the long run. Yeah. yeah. Not all brokers are created equal, are they? they are not. Um, and I don't mind that, mm. uh, but I if if I was running a mortgage-broking business, I would make that refundable if they went through with the loan and used the service. I wouldn't. <laughs> We do a lot of work for free. I make a yeah, joke in the, I make a joke in the office that we run a socialist model. Yeah. So yeah. I might spend thirty minutes with a client and do a two million dollar loan that I'm paid an awful lot of money for, mm, yeah. and I might spend a year talking to a first home buyer and get yeah. paid a very small amount well, after nothing that. Nothing when year. they go to their uncle's <laughs> yeah. brother or something. That's right. Yeah. That's but overall, it's yeah. a profitable business. We're paid very yeah. well for what we do, and yeah. I just I've never lost by doing it this way. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like I, I just was like, <laughs> no, I don't work for free, bitch. If you, if you don't want to bloody pay me, like, oh man. So if anyone wants to make real money in this world, go and be a mortgage broker. Is what Rachel's saying. Well, <laughs> you just got to look after people. And, yeah, true. you know, when I left my uh, employment in Sydney before I became a self-employed person, my boss, who was very, very successful, like, you know, you don't own a home at Kirribilli and without working hard and, you know, being really successful. He said to me two things, Glenn, 
number one, don't chase the dollars. And number two, look after people. Hmm. And that's kind of with my preferred panel of brokers like Rachel and her team and the advisors, they're kind of the two mantras that I really look at. And also you've got to be around for more than five minutes um, because yeah. I don't want, you know, Rach practicing on my listeners. No. So, it's, uh, it's really good. Mm. Let's just finish uh, quickly with uh, business owners. Angie Renee wrote, or Angie Renee, business owner here, how much uh, more info slash money slash loopholes to jump through for a company directed to buy a home? Uh, Cass says, how do you get a mortgage when self-employed? Uh, what tips or working part-time? So, we'll just mainly touch on the self-employed. I'm going to give a big major tip to anybody who's self-employed. If you are thinking about buying a home in the next 12 months, and let's say you're going to lodge your 2021 tax returns for yourself personally and the companies in the in the next few months, have a mortgage broker look at those returns before they're lodged because you're stuck with those returns for a very long time. The most common misconception from self-employed people is that the salary that they pay themselves has any bearing on their mm. ability to borrow. It doesn't. So I'm a company director. I could pay myself a salary of X and then my company could have a loss of Y. Well, they take that loss of Y off my X. That's right, yeah. So I would love to just give that one piece of advice, have somebody look at your company and personal tax returns before you sign them off and have them lodged. So it, it's not just your notice of assessment, it's your company financials as well combined? It is, especially during COVID. So a lot of people are calling and saying, oh, my income was $100,000 profit and my salary was $50,000. But when we get the return, there's actually $60,000 in government cash flow boosts or JobKeeper and the banks are deducting that before they're looking at your income. So it's not just about telling us what the profit is or what you're paying yourself. Somebody actually needs to review the company and personal returns to tell you what you can borrow on those. So if that's a good thing because I just wrote down then COVID payments. Um, if a company has received state-based or national incentives, Banks automatically aren't just throwing that out to say, no, your business isn't surviving because you're on government benefits. They're just going, well, it was COVID, it affected everyone, uh, but we're netting that off because it's not income. Yeah. And look, I don't know, I'm not saying whether I agree with this policy, Mm. but the policy is that they're taking that government payment off. Mm. So the government payment really should be covering a slower time. So it really should be the well, buffer. It should be replacing income. It should be replacing mm. income. So if I was the credit manager, I would not yeah. be taking it off, but the banks are taking it off. So it's just something to be wary I of. I saw an ad the other day, and this could be just um, new business marketing play for self-employed people, Virgin Money. Um, if you've been employed for more than a year or something and you pay yourself, they'll look at pay slips, but- yeah. Are they going to say, well, shells the financials anyway, just for housekeeping? Like- There's a couple of banks yeah. and some of the big major banks have brought out some great policies recently that are looking more of what you've paid yourself is if it's consistent. Right. Um, there's one in particular that is ignoring the company financials and that's very new, mm. but it's not Virgin. Right. Who is, um, it? is that a- It's Commonwealth Bank. Yes, CBA. I thought it was CBA. So that's but that's a, a marketing low- play. That, that's a low-doc loan, yeah? No, it's not a low-doc loan. Right. It's just there is a lot of parameters to go Mm. through. So I would still want a broker to review Mm. your paperwork first. Mm, You don't want to go lodging loans without knowing what the result's going to be. Sure. So on the business thing, if if I'm listening and I'm a business owner, it's November at the time of speaking. Yep. Uh, 
financially, the the financial year ended June 30. Do, uh, and that's for 2020, 2021 year, Mm -hmm. do I need my financials from that year or will they just accept the previous year? I I have a lot of self-employed clients and this is my absolute favourite time of year because you don't need to have 2021 done. So you've really got a choice. You can lodge a loan now with 2020 or with 2021. Cool. And, yeah, if 2021 is better and gives you a better outcome, yeah. lodge the bastard. And yes. Is, yes. <laughs> is March the cutoff for that or is it May? All the banks have a different policy, the majority of them it's Christmas time. Right. Some will let us go out till March and right. one bank let us go out till May last this year. That's a good bank. It was great. <laughs> so in finishing, um, Rach, did you want to cover anything that we might not have covered that's important to you to get across? Look, I think it's good for people to be prepared for the paperwork that a bank needs when they do an application. So whether you be, if you're self-employed or or employed, there's a lot of paperwork that we are going to want before we give a recommendation. And I think there's a lot more than what was asked for a few years ago. So a lot of people's parents are saying, wow, we didn't need to give that much paperwork when we did our loans. But lending's changed a lot since the Royal Commission. So there is an awful lot of paperwork we're going to ask for before we even sit down and give a recommendation. Get all of that paperwork into your broker before you have that initial appointment because there's no point in giving a recommendation without knowing everything. Mm. We want to know everything and we want to know whether we're going to be right before we make a recommendation. Simon did ask Simon Clover uh, what, uh, like, I guess, what's a red flag to a bank with a mortgage application? So I call it the three C's of credit. So it's collateral, which is whatever it is, the security that you're buying capacity to repay, which is your income, and it's character. So the character is the one that people sometimes forget, and that's where credit scoring comes into play. So character looks at how you've conducted yourself and have you, do you have um, a lot of consumer debt for your income or do you have assets that match your income in the last 10 years? Is there a, an RSL $150 withdrawal every third night? <laughs> yeah. So the the, the, red, the green flags up, are the green flags are income, security and some good history. The red flags would be lack of consistent income, mm. poor security or um, poor character, which might be you've got a whole lot of afterpay, zip pay. Mm. You tend to have five credit cards running at a time. Mm. They're the things that I, if you were thinking about buying in 12 months time, clean that up now. So for a first home buyer, you're straight out of university into your grab position. You've got no debt. You've got um, good cash flow, maybe a bit of hex debt. That's fine. You don't need to run out and get a credit card tomorrow to get a credit do score. Do not get a credit card for credit score. Mm. You do not need it. Mm. It's um, If you have a degree and some savings, your credit is going to be Mickey Mouse. And just finally on that, um, occupations and incomes that the bank think are more noble than others with LMI. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so um, always have a look at, at the industry specialisations. Um, there's different... There's different industries like doctors and lawyers where some banks will lend more based on the mortgage, based on the fact that they're going to be a little bit more solid long term. Yep. So a lawyer, for example, with a lot of banks can borrow up to 90% without paying mortgage insurance. I actually had a millennial money client recently that I got through as an exception. So he was a 
geotechnician but wasn't quite in the field that they did mm, except maybe. 90% no mortgage insurance but it was close enough and he had one little qualification that made us get it across the line. Wow, I so, said you'll do. Yeah, so only one bank in my 30 would have done that for him. So it's mm. really good to just check whatever that industry is before you do lending. And also on that, in his scenario, it might have been worth paying an extra percent in interest to not pay LMI to get up and running and then we can swing around in 12 months' time and review. Yes, but that wouldn't happen because we would always negotiate the rate. So yeah, when sure. we negotiate the rate with the bank, they don't know yet that we have to go there for a particular policy. Sure. So we it wouldn't be a higher rate yeah. to be able to do that. Mm. Well, Rach, thanks for your time today. Thanks uh, for having me. It's been great. We're actually yeah, awesome, Rach. weird turn of events. We scheduled for 11am at my home studio and then I realised that the cleaner was coming this morning <laughs> so we couldn't do it there and we were going to do it at John's office but he's got a tin roof and I didn't want to record with a bit of rain. <laughs> so we're at, we're at Rachel's home now and her little doggy, what, do, what is it? Uh, Hank. Hank the Blue Staffy. The blue Staffy. From Staffordshire, Staffordshire or whatever. Mm-hmm, the little English Staffy. Little yeah. Um, so yeah, we're uh, we're really thing. getting around. So thanks for having us in your home office, John. Did you want to add anything else? No, I think there was some gold in that, uh, as yeah. there always is. But yeah, look, you just need the right people in your corner, don't you? Mm. So thanks, Rach. But I would really encourage everyone go to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help. You can, uh, if you're not sure if you need a broker, you can use my form. Um, if in doubt, which you can use the new quiz there, um, which there's a blue button. Do I need a mortgage broker? If in doubt, you're welcome to put some information in my form, submit it. Um, that's one part of my business that I full on do myself at the moment. Um, I will look at your information and refer you to uh, someone suitable in Rachel's team or you know, if you need something else or an accountant or whatever, I'll personally look at your stuff and I'll tell you, like, don't, don't bother about that. But, you know, if in doubt, reach out and we'll get you connected with one of Rachel's team to um, to help. And they work all over Australia. Uh, although we do have some good brokers over in the West because that's another world over there. So um, Josh helps over there if, if someone wants someone in that time zone. But we've got brokers um, that can help wherever you are and Rachel's team is uh, available all over Australia. So yeah, there we go. All right, let's do it. We'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Rachel. See you soon. Bye. See ya. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.